It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but what? But what? You will receive what? You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now then, turn over to chapter 2, and we had Lane read to us the account of them receiving this power. And let me ask you a question. If you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, ask yourself the question, did the account that Lane read to us of the Holy Spirit coming in power on the disciples uh, resemble the life of the church in America today? Or is the text we're about to read uh, resemble the life of the church in America today? Which one do you think is more descriptive of evangelical Bible-believing churches today? 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Which text represents the church in America today? I was reading last night that there have been a number of studies undertaken demographically of our country, and you're reading about it all the time. Barna does the Bible believers, and Gallup does the rest. And this was neither of them. I don't remember who it was. But the results that they reported was that the United States was unique in the Western world, along with one other country, and had a very, very high percentage of Christians, people who confess faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the United States also had a very, very large percentage of those Christians whose moral lives were absolutely, completely rotten. And so we read the second text from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, and we have to admit this is us. This is not them. Recently on the blog, I was talking about the dangers of not preaching against homosexuality. And it was very interesting to see pastors, men who have the responsibility of preaching the word, saying, well, I don't think we should preach against society's sins. I think we should preach against the sins in the church Hello? I mean, can you really be a shepherd and think that homosexuality is a temptation for the world, but not for us Christians? If we had our eyes able to be open in this room right here, it would be amazing to us how many people in this room struggle with same-sex temptations. There's nothing new. Sin is sin. And so when we think about the church, the church in her midst 
has all the people that were in the midst of the Corinthian church. Of such were some of you. You remember that. And so when we come back to these two texts and we think we were promised the Holy Spirit, and the Bible said that the Holy Spirit would bring what? The very thing the disciples wanted, but they wanted it military power. They wanted political power. They wanted finally to be released from the indignity and the humiliation of being under the Roman Empire. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, that's up to my father. But you will receive power. And they go, right on, power. All right? And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So now let me ask, what are we today? The day of Pentecost when thousands are added to the church and baptized. Or are we Second Timothy where we have a form of godliness but we deny the power? Which are we? Which are we? Well, back at a former church uh, that I was at, I said in the pulpit one time, and I will say it again now, and you've heard it probably, that in many churches in America today, the preacher is paid to protect the congregation from the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the job of preaching. And there are many different ways of protecting you from the Holy Spirit. I can protect you from the Holy Spirit by giving a perfect Dallas Seminary expositional sermon with not one application. I've done my job. I can protect you by talking endlessly about grace. I've done my job. I can protect you by giving you all the moralism of the liberal mainline denominations about how we have to see the beauty of diversity. And I've done my job. What about Peter on the day of Pentecost? Did he do his job? Now, some of you are still lagging behind and you're thinking, what are you saying protect us from the Holy Spirit? Well, look at the text and you'll see. Acts chapter 2, I want us to focus at the end of his sermon. It says at the end of his sermon in in verse 36 of chapter 2, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Now, what does it mean to be the Lord? When Mike Bowles walks onto the job site of the new church building, Mike Bowles is the Lord. Mike Bowles has caused some men to walk off the job. And he wasn't being a sinner. He was being the Lord. If it's in the plan, you're going to do it. No, don't talk to me about not doing it. You're going to do it. I'm not saying Mike doesn't sin. He does sin. Ask his wife. (laughs) But he is the Lord. Americans are so democratic that we have a very difficult time understanding that Lord brings authority. And so what he ends up the sermon saying is what? Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him what? Both Lord and Christ. Now, the word Christ meant Messiah, the promised one. He is the right hand of the throne of God. And he is the Messiah. Now, what does that say to you if you're there that day? Who was there that day? Well, if you look back at the beginning of the text, you'll see...
in verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, what was the word devout mean? It probably uh, is it's just simply a way of saying God-fearers. So there were people from all over the Roman Empire who were there that day, and they were godly, and they were devout. All right? And Peter is preaching to these men. And he gets to the end of the sermon, and what does he say to them? Devout, God-fearing men, Jews, what does he say to them? Look again at the end, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, again, Jews, let them all know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And what happens? Well, look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Did I read the text accurately? Do you think anybody would have been pierced to the heart if that's how he had ended his sermon? Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to the godly. He was speaking to the Jews. You heard it. How does he end the sermon? He ends the sermon saying, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. And then it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Why is it that the church in America today is completely lacking in the power of God? It's because the church in America today no longer believes in the ministry of the Holy Spirit of convicting us of sin. There is no sin in America today. And if, it, if there is, it's the sin of Washington, it's the sin of Walt Disney, it's the sin of L.A., it's the sin of Hollywood, it's the sin of Las Vegas, Sin City. And it's not my sin, and it's not your sin, and if I mention your sin, then I won't be a pastor any longer. Because it's my job to protect you from the conviction of sin. You say, no, earlier you said, from the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say, that's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit always is is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world. Do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember Jesus promised that if he left, it would be good because, and I always have a stumbling block with the good part. You know, I think, how can it be good that Jesus leaves us? And Jesus says that it would be good if he left. Why? In John 16, 8, he says, I'll send you the Comforter, and when he comes, what? He will convict the world of guilt. It's good that I'm leaving, because I'll send the Holy Spirit, and it's good that he'll come, because he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and heaven. But that's not what it says. It says he will convict the world of sin in regard to sin, or excuse me, in regard to sin, yes, of guilt, I'm sorry. He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and what? Come on, you know it. Come on, say it. Judgment. Now, why would that be something that would be so good that Jesus would leave so that we could have it? Well, if you're married, you know why. It is impossible to live an hour with one another as husband and wife without sinning against each other. It's impossible. Jake and Amanda have hit the wall. 
In fact, I have reason to believe they hit the wall before they got married yesterday. Because my wife got a phone call from Amanda right before the wedding. Minutes. Now, she didn't talk about her future husband, so who knows? Now, I don't know. It's all under grace. But the fact is, two people don't get together without sparks. And those sparks are not because they're chewing wintergreen lightsabers. Right? The sparks are sin. The sparks are sin that's intentional, that's planned, that's willful, that's really ugly, that does destroy, that does corrupt. This is who we are. And so when I say that Jesus promised that he'll give us the Holy Spirit, that it's a good thing, and that anybody married understands that, it's because you can't live together as husband and wife without forgiveness. You can't live together as two women in a dorm room. You can't play soccer together without forgiveness. Ask Andrew and me after last week. It's impossible. We sin because we're sinners. Now, ask yourself this. If the church today is completely lacking in power, and I think you have to agree it is, why is it lacking in power? It's because the church today does not want to come under conviction of sin. And that's why churches around the country have a form of godliness but deny the power. Have you been into a church like that? My wife and I went to a church recently, and my wife's comment afterwards was, everything in the sermon was absolutely true and completely meaningless. What is that? There's no power. Is the Holy Spirit impotent? Is the Holy Spirit weak? Have you been under the ministry of the Holy Spirit? If you've been under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the way that you began to know you were under the ministry of the Holy Spirit is you became convicted of your sin. If you have a good husband, it's becomes he has the Holy Spirit convicting him of sin. And you know how you know that? Because he says, I'm sorry. And you know when he says, I'm sorry, you know how he says it? He says it like this. When the Holy Spirit leads him to confess his sin and to be convicted of sin, he says he's sorry. Honey, I didn't mean it that way, but if you took it that way, I'm sorry. Honey, I shouldn't have yelled at you, but you know that drives me wacko when you do that. Honey... I'm sorry, but how many times do I have to tell you? Is that the Holy Spirit's work? Is it the Holy Spirit's work? It's not. The Holy Spirit does His work perfectly. And if His work is to convict us of sin, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. I was wrong. And what a liberating thing. (laughs) And that's the whole division in the church in America. That's it. That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. You don't need to talk about infant baptism. You don't need to talk about which Bible you use. You don't need to talk about whether you meet in a school or you have a cathedral. You don't need to talk about organs or guitars. You don't need to talk about any of that. The division in the church today is between those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, and they hate the Holy Spirit because they hate humility and meekness. 
and they will not ask for forgiveness, and they will not give it because they do not know Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? And those who are tender of conscience, those who are sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Why? Because before Jesus Christ comes the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes us united. How? I've noticed when you travel that it's obvious when you're around Christians. And I've thought a lot about what makes it obvious. Well, you know what makes it obvious? Meekness and humility. You know, (laughs) a Christian is a broken bronco. He's still a bronco. Making lots of mistakes, bucking and biting and headbutting, and and yet he's a broken bronco because he accepts the discipline of the Holy Spirit and he says, "I'm sorry," and he looks to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and baptism, and he has faith that Jesus came for sinners. Some of you live with unbelievers. And you don't know this because they say to you, Jesus never lived, Jesus never died, Jesus wasn't holy, Jesus is not the perfect Lamb of God. You know that they're unbelievers because there is no forgiveness in them. And Jesus said, if you refuse to forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will refuse to forgive your sins. And because they cannot forgive sins, they also cannot ask for forgiveness. And it's because they have not been forgiven. And that's because they have not repented. And that's because the Holy Spirit has not given them the first gift of spiritual life, which is conviction of sin. If you're not convicted of sin then you don't flee to the cross. Do you understand that? Here's how Calvin puts it. Calvin says, speaking of the conviction of sin that the Apostle Peter gave the crowd, he says it was required that this crowd should be so wounded lest they should have been slow to seek for medicine. They had to be wounded so they'd flee to the cross. And then he says... Verse 37, you see how it begins? After he says, you killed him, this Jesus whom you crucified, look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were what? They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit preached. The Holy Spirit convicted them of sin. And they cried out, what shall we do? They were pricked in the heart. And Calvin says this, Luke declares the fruit of the sermon. To the end that we may know that the power of the Holy Spirit was not only shown forth in the many tongues that they spoke with, but also in their hearts that heard. And he notes a double fruit. First, that they were touched with the feeling of sorrow. And second, that they were obedient to Peter's counsel. This is the beginning of repentance. This is the entry to godliness. To be sorry for our sins and to be wounded with the feelings of our miseries. For so long as men are careless, they can't heed such doctrine as they ought. And for this cause, the Word of God is compared to a sword, because it mortifies our flesh. That means it kills our flesh. 
so that we may be offered to God as a sacrifice. But there must be added unto this pricking in heart readiness to obey. Now, every time the word of God goes out, it divides. It's a sword. It's sharper. And it's so sharp that it's able to divide between joint and marrow. It's able to divide between those who are pricked in their heart and who harden their hearts in unbelief and pride and those who are tender of conscience, who the Holy Spirit has given the gift of repentance. All right. And so today as I preach... The sword goes out, and the sword separates us into those who are humble and meek and who the Holy Spirit has worked in our heart. How do we tell the difference between those who are pricked in their conscience and harden their heart and those who are pricked in their conscience and are repentant, who are converted, who are those of faith? How do you tell the difference between the two? Well, the difference is told by obedience. That's the difference. What kind of obedience? Well, let's look at those who harden their hearts. Calvin says this. We see many, oftentimes, who, although being pricked in their conscience, still they fret and they murmur. And with, he uses the word forwardly, and it's hard to understand what he means by that. It's, a, it's an antiquated translation. Term, but we see many oftentimes who, although being pricked in their conscience, nevertheless they fret, they murmur, they strive, they struggle, and consequently they go furiously mad. Yes, this is the cause why they go mad, because they feel such prickings against their will. Those men, therefore, are profitably pricked alone who are willingly sorrowful and seek remedy at God's hands. <laughs> In other words, it's the ministry of Jesus Christ, and you see this all through his life, to bring the pricking of conscience. And how do the Pharisees and scribes respond? Again and again and again. They're jealous, and they attack him. Sometimes verbally, sometimes they try to kill him. Why? They're pricked in their conscience, but their response is to defy the living God. And they resist him. They refuse to seek the remedy at the hand of God. They refuse to have faith in Jesus Christ. What is the entire liberal mainline apparatus that's dying slowly in America? It is churches with a form of godliness who deny the power of the Holy Spirit in convicting men of sin and giving them faith to believe in Jesus. And so they hate the substitutionary atonement. You talk to them and ask them what they think about God sacrificing his son and that blood covering men's sins. And they say, my God is much larger than that. That's what they'll actually say. My God is not a bloodthirsty God. What's that about? Is it just another path to heaven? No, it's a path to hell. It's a path to hell. And we're all fine with condemning that because, after all, the first thing you learn when you come in here is this isn't a mainline liberal church, right? But what about evangelical churches where it's always faith, always faith, always forgiveness, always grace, always faith, always forgiveness? Is that any less evil in silencing the work of the Holy Spirit and convicting men of sin? Is it any less evil? 
If somebody from Dallas or Wheaton or Covenant does it, does that make it more righteous? You know what Luther says? Luther says it's always the habit of preachers to preach much of forgiveness and nothing of repentance. Do you know what both Luther and Calvin said was at the center of the Reformation biblical witness? They said repentance. That was the first of the 95 theses. When our Lord Jesus said, you remember what the theses are? Those are the propositions for debate that, that uh, the pastor Luther nailed up on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. 95 of them. The very first one was what? When our Lord Jesus said we must repent, he was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Now, this is a believer. What would it be to have an evangelistic method that didn't involve repentance? That only involved assuming that everybody sitting on your preaching already knew they were Sinners, and they don't need to be convinced of sin. They don't need to be convinced that they're sinners. They just need to be, to, to be offered the, the grace of Jesus Christ. Come on, people, what is that? That's what I used to do when I was a young man. I was a pilot. If they asked what, what jobs we had in youth group, I said, I'm a pilot. And then they'd say, well, where do you fly? And I'd say, no, no, I, I work in a stable, and I pilot here, and I pilot there. For a couple of years, I cleaned horse stalls. Very glamorous job. Was I a sinner? You bet I was a sinner. I was paid to clear out the old straw and manure and to put in new. Oftentimes, you know what I did. I went in and I took a bunch of new straw and put it right on top of the manure. Because I was hoping that the horse's feet would rot their hooves. I wasn't really. You get my point. My point is, I was a sinner. So if we all understand that's sinful, I'm getting paid to do a job that I'm not doing, all right? What about a preacher who never, ever, ever mentions repentance? Should the sheep know that that's harmful to them? Yes, you should know. Because we lose a quarter of you every year. You're going to go out and you're going to choose a church. You must be confident that the first gift the Holy Spirit gives is the gift of conviction of sin. And if you go into a church and you sit under the Sunday school teaching and the preaching of the Word, and you get to know people in the church, and and they do what uh, uh, a couple uh, uh, of my own denominational leaders recently did, where Heather and Doug were looking for a church, and and they go into this church, and they get to know them, and they get to like them, and then both the women's Bible study and the men's Bible study, independently, I'll leave it at this. It was very clear that conviction of sin was absent among the leadership of that church. Trust me. If you want to know the specifics, ask anybody in our family afterwards. How can you go to a church and sit under a shepherd who does not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? This last week I was speaking to someone about his sin. And I pointed it out gently. And it didn't work. And I mean, it was just, it wasn't against me. So, you know, this isn't about me. It's about sin. It was very clear. And the sin had hurt someone else. 
And after pointing it out gently, the person didn't get it. So then I pointed it out a little more intensely. And guess what? The person didn't get it. I had that with you one time. (laughs) So what did I do then? Well, I, I did it a little more intensely. And guess what? The person didn't get it. Didn't get it. Now, this is after a couple hours with this person. Much excellent discussion. This is only the last half hour. And finally, I was reduced to the equivalent. Don't worry, I didn't lay a hand on the person. But I was reduced to the equivalent of grabbing this person by the lapels of their coat, shaking them and saying, No, it was sin! It was intentional. You didn't just make a mistake in your communication method. You hurt that person intentionally. You meant evil. This is why Jesus died. And if you can't see that and ask their forgiveness, how do I know you're a believer? Where is the fruit? Remember, where's the meat? Where is the fruit of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you? If there's no humility, no brokenness, no ability to say, I'm sorry, no conviction of sin, where is the fruit? Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. If you don't rejoice in confessing your sin to your wife, you are a pagan. You are an unbeliever. If you can't confess your sin to your children, you have no faith in you. You think it's all about what kind of a posture you cop in front of your children so they can grow up thinking you're a very dignified man. And then they can teach their children to be proud and dignified too and what a heritage they'll have. It's despicable. Once you've had the Holy Spirit minister to your heart, And you rejoice. And yes, that's my wife. And she has to live with me. And I'm a pill. But what? I'm supposed to hide that? You know how many times apologies go by email between the elders of our church? All the time. How could we not? You know, some of you have never sent an apology. Never, never. Oh, I I take that back. You'll say I'm sorry, but you'll always say it carefully couched with what the political scientists call weasel words. You know, I'm sorry if, I'm sorry but, if and and but. And every time there's an if and an and and a but, it calls into question the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart. No if, ands, and buts. You know, you know, I'm a real slime ball, Mary Lee. Did you know that? Oh, honey, yeah, after 33 years, I think I did know that. I'm a real slime ball, Hannah. Did you know that? I'm a real slime ball, Lucas. Did you know that? Uh, hey, yes, I think I did know that, Tim. <laughs> okay, guys, day of Pentecost, what's the gift? You shall receive power. All right, you know. We'll get nuclear warheads finally. 
and we'll be able to face off the United States of America. No, 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 no. Days and times and epics are up to my Father. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And how was Peter his witness? Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the quick. This is a church that has a form of godliness and the power of God. That's a church. And that's what makes this church who we are. We do not pay our preacher to protect us from the Holy Spirit. Now, that makes us a pretty gnarly group of people. Because ain't nobody coming here who isn't a sinner. But then Jesus himself was surrounded by a pretty gnarly group of people. The mainline religious people aren't asking to hang out here. And the scribes and Pharisees weren't asking to hang out with Jesus. One of them came at night. Remember Nicodemus. So do you love the Holy Spirit? Do you love his ministry? Do you see his ministry accurately? He will convict sin and righteousness and judgment. We have in front of us the Lord's table. What is the qualification for the table? The qualification is that you're aware of your sin, that you grieve over it, that you hate it, and that you believe that Jesus came to pay the penalty for that sin. In other words, that you're broken. So, each time we come to the table, if the elders would come at this time, please.